This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. This is Drew Dixon from Love Thy Nerd. I am the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd, and I'm joined with Chris Gwaltney. By Chris, by by Chris, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joined by Chris Gwaltney. Hey, Chris. You're killing it, man. Thanks, it's been man. a while, I so worked really hard on it. Yeah, I'm Chris. I practiced I'm the... that intro in the mirror actually, like yeah. several times. I believe it. I am a chief executive nerd for Love Thy Nerd, and. This is Humans of Gaming, where we talk to the many, many people in the games industry that do what we love. They help make the things we love. We just want to get to know them as people. So thanks for being here. Uh, This is actually going to be uh, part two of a conversation we had with Yannick. uh, Yeah, Yannick Lejac. Yeah. Which is a sweet last name, Lejac. Way cooler than Dixon. Not as you know. cool as Gwaltney, though. Is Gwaltney cool? <sighs> That's all right. There's like a bacon brand, isn't there, called Gwaltney or something <laughs> There like is, that? and I get no money yeah. from it. <laughs> or bacon, yeah. for that matter. No, that's a bummer. So yeah, this is part two. It was a long conversation, but it was a good one, man. There was just a lot of meat in there, and hope you guys enjoyed yeah. the first part. And um, yeah, we get into a lot more territory in the second part. And, yeah, so uh, this part you're going to hear about uh, Yannick's experiences at Blizzard, mm-hmm. uh, how he's a full-time writer there, and kind of, you get a little bit of a, a, a peek into what it would be like to work for one of the nation's world's, really world's largest yeah. game studios. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and Blizzard's unique, too, in that it's, uh, you know, um, a publisher and a developer, mm-hmm. so they kind of wear both those hats, which is- Do everything in-house. Kind of rare these days. Um and uh, yeah, it's it's weird and hard and fun to work at a place like that. And so if mm-hmm. you're if you're interested in you know putting your uh, hat into the ring to work for a big studio like that, this will give you some insight on what it's like and yeah, for sure. that experience. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah. Well, hope you guys enjoy uh, the conversation with Yannick as it continues and uh, wraps up on humans and gaming. So thanks for being here. I do want to hear, before we run out of time, I want to respect your time. Uh, I know today we're actually recording on uh, New Year's Day, so <laughs> definitely want to respect. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, everyone. Um, oh, yeah, no, that, this is, I mean, I'm happy to talk. I can talk for a while, honestly. I mean, I'm kind of grateful for the company right now because I've been sort of <laughs> alone for the past you've, few days. Yeah. It's been a rough, yeah, it's been a rough, you've had a rough go of it lately. But yeah, so how did you, um, or maybe like walk us through uh, how you transitioned to working, because you were a writer for Blizzard for a while and how, how kind of all that came about. Yeah, so similar to what I guess I was saying about um, Tom Bissell or something was like I clearly... I did something. You felt like that was similar, your trajectory, kind of to like. like a, sorry, what? Did you feel like that was sort of your tra- the trajectory, as it were? Like, like if you if you don't oh. want to do games writing forever because it's 
it's pretty freaking demanding yeah. than land a job as a writer for a major studio. Mm-hmm. Game yeah. Studio. And it, there's like different ways to do that and different um, places to do that. And I think um, I like, like I, I say something that it was similar to Tom Bissell in that I think like I, so I, I had started at Kotaku during that email that I quoted before was um, uh, Stephen and the rest of the kind of leadership at Kotaku had kind of been trying very actively to sort of pivot our coverage to this way where we were more focused on um, kind of games that were currently popular rather than games that were being kind of like hyped or like you know the anticipation was kind of building for them so mm-hmm. one of the thing i think big and very important realizations that he made at that time was that um and i think actually destiny of all things was what contributed to this because when destiny came out um a bunch of people at kotaku really kind of latched onto it and really liked it but obviously destiny has always been a very kind of controversial and problematic game as well so they were criticizing it a lot as well and that just like that was doing really well for the site on a number of different levels like the articles were good the content was good and it was getting tons of traffic so i think the combination of that and this kind of like present focused coverage that he wanted to see was that um we just had a couple conversations as a as a team where he was like hey what are some other games like destiny that we can write about at that level where it's like, we're doing a lot of very sustained and regular coverage of it. And, um, someone said league of legends, cause league of legends is obviously like one of the most popular games in the world. And nobody volunteered for it. <laughs> nobody <laughs> wanted to take it on. Nobody wanted to endure yeah. <laughs> the toxicity of league of legends right. to write about it. So I like was the one that raised my hand. Cause I was just like, this seems like interesting. And God, <laughs> I hate myself just <laughs> enough. I'll volunteer for this. Um, I'm right in that sweet spot. Right. So I think like I started that and I think, um, I don't know. I, I try to be sympathetic or supportive of myself in some ways today because I definitely did a lot of stupid stuff in the course of trying to write about League of Legends like so regularly and so assiduously. But it was also like, I don't like seeing where games coverage kind of went after that. Like, I think it did genuinely have some positive influence on the ways that like online games were covered. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that more kind of focused on me personally one of the things that happened with that was um blizzard contacted me at a certain point after i'd been like i kind of had this reputation online and certainly in the industry of like oh yannick's the guy who just writes all the time about league of legends now so blizzard was trying at that point to promote and release um heroes of the storm which was it's kind mm. of like yeah, yeah. competing title to yeah. league of legends and yep. i checked it out because i was curious about it and i really loved uh i call it hots they mm-hmm. blizzard itself doesn't really like that acronym but i think it's the it's it's the best and most self-evident one so <laughs> um <laughs> i really loved hots and i think I think part of what I liked about it in retrospect too was that it was very explicitly designed in a number of ways to try to be more 
kind of casual and newcomer friendly and accessible than League of Legends. And I was still trying, like, part of the struggle of my League of Legends coverage was I was trying to kind of write about this game at a fairly high level while also struggling to just, like, you know, master it or not even master it, but understand it on on a clear way um, myself mm-hmm. as a player. And, like, the climb in League of Legends just to get to level 30, which is when you can start playing ranked games, is, like, so long and it's so brutal. And I, I remember my girlfriend at the time... <laughs> who's uh uh she was a games journalist as well now she's a game uh narrative designer she was really into mobas and she loved dota 2 which is dota 2 is the like even more complex and difficult one than Mm -hmm. league of legends and she compared it in this way i found really interesting to kind of like entering into a fraternity or being like you know drafted and and brought into like you know the way you see in movies like full metal jacket like the kind of like whole like recruitment <laughs> process of joining the military where it's like so accurate you literally have just your kind of like soul you and your life and your identity you. just like broken down by this game yeah. and how brutal and toxic and abusive people are in it as yeah. you're learning to play it so then by the time you kind of like emerge victorious from that awful painful process as like a person who's like okay now i'm a dota player you've become you like you've had to by design you've had to develop such a thick skin of like so like all the toxicity and abuse just kind of bounces off of you because that's the only way you could survive it that long mm-hmm. you know um mm-hmm. but so i was playing league a lot and then i think i i kind of quickly picked up on hots as an alternative and i started writing about that a lot and that in retrospect, like if I'd wanted to continue working as a games journalist, that probably wasn't the best idea because Hots was never like it never took off the way Blizzard clearly wanted right. it to, and it yeah. never kind of. And they eventually abandoned it, basically, right? Well, it's still alive, but yeah, they like for a while it had like a very large development team because MOBAs themselves they're very like dense and complicated games, so you need a lot of people to work on them, like. The reason why Riot struggled for so long to ever release another game is that like you kind of need a gigantic company at the size and scale of Riot just to be able to support something like League in the first place to kind of pump out content at the pace that you need to monetize the game and then also to like just constantly be rebalancing heroes and the Mm kind of way that the whole competitive system works. So Yeah, just the esports stuff alone. Yeah. So that... Um, then like when I, I ended up getting, uh, uh, let go. I'll I'll just say fired. I don't know why let go always feels like a weird, um, feels better to me, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, like Gawker media at the time that this was all happening was going through its kind of final throws with the Hulk Hogan lawsuit that it was being sued by Hulk Hogan in that famous case. Um, Mm -hmm. cause gawker proper had posted uh that video of of him um having sex with his friend's wife and um yeah it's it's weird thinking that. of how my career was influenced by oh. hulk hogan in some bizarre ways. <laughs> thanks a lot hulk <laughs> but so i was let go um because the company was just like literally hemorrhaging money after a certain point and they were just kind of like you know, there was just like a lot of kind of tensions as a result of that. And then 
when that happened, um, Blizzard kind of immediately like approached me and asked me if I wanted to come work for them, um, which I'd been so like, I was just so kind of exhausted and burnt out both from the pressures that I was telling you about before in terms of just like the insane time mm-hmm. commitment of video game journalism. And then also that kind of let layered on top of how crazy an environment Gawker was at that time, because it was going through such a like kind of profound um, sort of shift. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, it, it was basically kind of like, um, like dissolving in, in front of our eyes in certain ways. Like yeah. it was running out of money and getting going bankrupt, like at in real time. Um, and that obviously That's like, wild. Like just made 31, it a very tense place to work. I just looked this up. It was a thirty-one million dollars settlement. So for a <sighs> media company, that's right. Yeah. And the whole thing, Big, but yeah, there's not that kind of money in in me in like uh, the type of coverage and things that sites that Gawker ran. Right, because it was like I, I, Gawker was profitable, and I think like maybe they would have even been able to survive it if it had happened somewhere else. But I remember one of the specific challenges was that the place where the lawsuit was filed, and then like where it was ultimately decided, was in or around Hulk Hogan's kind of hometown. And I remember one of the kind of specific technicalities of that was that when you lose a lawsuit case like that in that um, legal ecosystem, you're kind of for, you have to pay the entire settlement up front. You can't like pay it in installments or anything. And, you know, looking back at that case in the way that Peter Thiel was obviously kind of masterminding it to destroy Gawker, like that was obviously an attempt because he knew that like, if you put Gawker, if you, if you give them this $30 million bill up front that they just have to pay, all at once like that was going to dissolve the company basically um so anyways that was all happening and once i was let go i think i was just at a point where i was like kind of wanting to try something new so then blizzard Mm -hmm. when i got this invitation from blizzard it was both it was both exciting because like i really loved hots and i still love hots um and like this idea of being able to kind of contribute to something that i was really enthusiastic about at the time that was exciting but then blizzard also what was the position for um well that's like the thing is i was a writer (laughs) i was hired as a writer and i think one of my errors was i didn't really think about this clearly enough in advance of like what that would be like at a company as big as blizzard because like Hmm. i just sort of came in and i remember when i did my interviews there i was really excited and um you know, throwing all these ideas out to them and all the people I was interviewing sound or interviewing with sounded really like excited too. And then once I got there, I realized like, Oh, like this is this huge complicated company with all this internal bureaucracy and stuff. And like, even if you have a really exciting idea, like it is a really arduous and kind of timely process, time consuming process just to even like, Mm-hmm. you know build the coalitions the you need internally to get it approved or anything so i was a writer on this team called it was just called uh editorial and I, i'm trying to think of how to say this one of the things that's weird about like blizzard is a very 
or at least it was, I don't know what it's like now because, you know, it, it was obviously restructured a lot after the layoffs in 2019, which I was part of, but it's a very like idiosyncratic company in a lot of ways because it, it's both a publisher and a developer, which a lot of other, if you think of other kind of companies at its level, like EA or Ubisoft, um, like a lot of those companies are more just kind of, like EA, for instance, is much more a publisher that owns all these independent yeah. studios. Whereas mm. like Blizzard has always kind of like handled both by itself. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that changed a little bit, or it ha- and it's changing more and more with the acquisition by Activision, but um, for a while, at least, it was kind of like, especially when Mike Morheim and all the kind of original founders were still in charge of everything, it was very much kind of, like, left to do its own thing in a lot of ways. And I think when it came to something like writing, that led to some kind of awkwardness on a structural level, because, like, the company the company was so big and i think it hadn't really done a lot of work or enough work to kind of account for how big it had become post like world when world of warcraft came out that was kind of like the first game of that size or that scale right like and i think it, it's oh, yeah. a really historically significant title in the history of the game industry because it one, it kind of rocketed Blizzard to this new echelon of wealth and power that like nobody could have really imagined prior to that point. And that's when Blizzard, you know, Drew, you you came and visited me at the campus. That's when Blizzard moved out of like some dingy little office and established itself as like it has this full, like massive sprawling campus in Orange yeah, County, it's, California. It's a crazy place. Yeah. You gave us the official unofficial tour. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I think the thing that I didn't even realize, and this is a thing that, like, I think a lot of games journalists actually do a pretty bad job of, because there's been this narrative for a long time of, like, seeing WoW as this game that's kind of slowly dying or decaying. And that may be true in a grand scheme of things, but, like, I think what people don't realize that, like, one, made WoW so successful in the first place, and then continues to make it successful to this way that like it's basically been the kind of backbone of blizzard in a financial sense for a very long time now is because like so many other companies like like league of legends for instance riot with league of legends like they had to kind of find these new business models to monetize themselves and a lot of those were kind of built to avoid charging people a monthly subscription price but like Mm -hmm. A monthly subscription price is obviously one of the most clear and easy ways yeah, it's you, consistent. Can you can support yourself it. as a as an online business, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you think of WoW at its peak, it was like what, like twelve million players who are all paying, yeah. you know, fifteen, twenty bucks a month or something like that. Like mm-hmm. it it was incredibly lucrative. And I think The company, like, already had all of these established franchises like Diablo and StarCraft prior to that. And then when it kind of, like, boomed in this new way, I think it just kind of, like, um, I think it just kind of kept, like, adding new people and new resources and hiring new teams and stuff just because, like, it it had the money to do that, basically. The awkwardness... You feel like it kind of got just bloated? I don't... 
I don't know if bloated is the right word. And I want to be clear that I can't really speak to how that impacts it as a developer because I was never in one of the development teams proper. But Mm -hmm. for writing purposes, it led to this very weird thing where there was like several different teams of writers in completely different parts of the company that were like ultimately kind of like it led to this weird kind of like jurisdictional and like kind of like rivalry almost in certain ways where it's like, like we were all trying to kind of work on the same thing simultaneously, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was like, you know, so like I worked and my, and like in this team called the editorial, I think it's full name was like global publishing editorial. And that was officially part of the publishing department or, it would, you wouldn't call it the department, but that kind of like wing of the company essentially. And then mm-hmm. I met a couple other writers in um, who worked in a completely different part of the company that was referred internally. It was always called the tech org. And they worked as kind of very similar types of things as like a kind of mixture of copywriting and narrative writing um, where they worked, but they were, classified completely differently because they technically were employed through the kind of like i think it was called web and mobile like they worked officially on like the websites and BattleNet as like this kind of standalone app and client that the company has um and that was just really weird because oh and then on top of that the other thing i should add with that is that blizzard um i think blizzard historically has not been one of the companies that has made a ton of dedicated, like it doesn't dedicate a bunch of like fully invested resources strictly in narrative design. A lot of the time when you have positions like narrative design, they're more something like quest designers, which means they're kind of doing more, more of the kind of technical nitty gritty stuff of like implementing this stuff in the game itself, rather than just kind of like, sitting and dreaming up stories and writing dialogue and then punching the dialogue into a spreadsheet or something like that. Um, And that's like how wow and like Diablo and a lot of the different uh, departments have always worked. Essentially they have other parts which are, have dedicated writers, but a lot of that, as far as I know is both handled kind of contractually. Like you have like these kind of novelists who like, the same sort of people who write like Warhammer novels and stuff like that, they would write the kind of like extended universe Starcraft novels and Diablo novels, which yeah. God, those games have like so much lore that I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I remember at one point yeah. I applied for this job internally. Cause like, you know, you, you get to see these jobs pop up internally before they're posted publicly. And it sounded mm-hmm. so cool. It was a job as an, a historian because they have a his, history department at Blizzard. That's incredible. And um, a lot of big <laughs> wow. com- a lot of big companies like BioWare and other companies that deal with a lot of really complicated lore have those kind of positions too, where you're basically just like trying to make sure that everything is internally consistent. Yeah, um, that's oh, wild, man. And I quickly That's like realized a dream job for so many yeah, people. <laughs> I quickly realized when I applied for that that I was like, I would need, I would have needed to be playing WoW from like day one, and I would have needed to <laughs> like yeah. spent years of my life learning about all of this to be at the level. There's of someone like... way more nerdy than you. That's... 
Dude, gonna get that job. Just that <laughs> Warcraft lore alone. That's like yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it doesn't work. I, I honestly, that was one of the things that I always, I was always a little bit out of place at Blizzard just because I was not a WoW. I've never been a WoW person. I was yeah. honestly kind of. I remember as a kid, I was kind of mad at Blizzard for making WoW because I loved the Warcraft RTS, especially Warcraft Three. Yeah, um, those were great games. Yeah, like I love yep. that game so much. So I was mad that I was like, "Why aren't you just making more Warcraft RTS games?" <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. but um, doesn't WoW have like? I mean, it has like alternate timelines and like different dimensions and stuff like that too. At this sure. point, so uh, probably it's like it's like comic book <laughs> lore. Like you just yeah. like, oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, There's yeah. like five different versions of Thrall or something like that, and you like have to make sure you know which one you're actually writing for. Um, yeah, but anyway, so that's all to say, like I think <sighs> there was kind of this cultural expectation, and I think it was it's kind of a crappy one, and it was one that I was holding myself to in a way that I shouldn't have when I left games journalism, which is I think like. I think there was this big kind of pressure that I felt certainly and I heard from a lot of other people both at Kotaku specifically and then just in games journalism more broadly of like there was ways that you could switch into working in the game industry that were considered kind of like um, not noble or anything but at least like cool or like respectable Mm-hmm. And like you've seen a lot of journalists like Tom Bissell do that, where it's like if you switch from being a game critic to then writing as a full time narrative designer, I think people tend to look at that as kind of more of a higher calling than if yeah. you go into working in publishing, be it marketing or PR or community management. I certainly felt like I was getting this kind of message from people that like that is selling out essentially. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, you're going from criticizing games and you're going from speaking about them honestly to then like being a shill for this big corporation yeah, working yep. for the man. Yeah. And I can see that. Well, I don't think that's I, fair, but I yeah, can see that. I think it, I think that there, there is a lot of truth to that. And I think that that was honestly looking back, I think part of what, just didn't really work for me about working at blizzard because i i'll be totally honest like i wasn't very happy there mm-hmm. well be- and i knew that and i'd recognize that and i was making plans to leave well before the layoffs happened mm-hmm. um because like i just don't i don't think that's who i really am as a person like i don't like writing the kind of like very like hype focused kind of promotional content And I thought for a while I would be okay with that, especially with a game like Heroes, because I was like, well, I love this game's aesthetic. I love its design. I love the way it plays. You know, like, I I just love it in all these ways. So, like, how could, why would it be a problem to just, like, write all this kind of stuff talking about how awesome it is every day? Um, And for a while it was that, but I just, I don't think that's, like, how I work as a person. Like, I'm kind of... Sure, yeah. I'm more sort of cynical than that, and I I tend to kind (laughs) of... find problems in things which is in some ways probably why you know went back to school and i'm now pursuing the work i'm doing now because you know like being a social worker the whole thing that they say as the kind of top level tagline on all the msw masters of social work programs is like social workers work on addressing social problems so it's like okay like Mm -hmm. i'm more interested in identifying and describing problems 
than I am just talking about how great something is, if that yeah. makes sense. What up, nerd? Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Love Thy Nerd Podcast Network. We hope you're enjoying it. But hey, did you know that Love Thy Nerd airs almost all of its podcasts first on LTN Radio? That's right. LTN Radio is your home for the best Christian rock, rap, pop, and indie music. And it's also the place to go to hear Love Thy Nerd's content before it reaches the podcast feed. In addition to that, Love Thy Nerd creates a lot of content that's exclusive to LTN Radio that you're missing out on. So go check out LTNOnAir.com and listen for yourself. You can also download the Live 365 app on your smartphone and search in favorite LTN Radio or enable the LTN Radio skill on your Echo devices and simply ask Alexa to play Love Thy Nerd. Now let's get you back to that podcast. So that's a pretty big pivot going from, you know, games industry to like what's what's that process been like or what's your relationship now with the games industry stuff? Because that's, I don't know, to me kind of a pretty big pivot. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> i'm laughing because i so it's been really funny because like i've i've like like i I mean you're not going into it for the money let's be honest social work yeah (laughs) well at least like the work is a little i don't want to say it's more stable but at least like it's reliable in the way that like there Mm. always needs to be social workers whereas like yeah jobs like that aren't kind of held victim to the kind of boom and bust model of the ways that game studios like they need to employ gajillions of people for like the six to 12 months prior to a game's release and then once it gets released they just like yeah so lay off 80 percent of the staff or something there's less there's while social work i imagine is incredibly difficult and demanding plenty of job security well yeah and i imagine that there's uh it's like less abusive towards it (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, yeah I no, that's is, probably yeah. true. I just mean like that. That's probably the wrong way to put it. But I guess I'm just saying like that, that uh, there's this whole mentality in the game space of like, I mean, if, if you don't want to work your butt off and right, right. then like there's a million other people that want your job. So right, yeah, that's not exactly. the case in social work, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's like, it's Cause not nobody wants like, that job. <laughs> and that's like, you know, you saying that reminds me of, Certainly a thing that I experienced and even my friends in other parts of journalism, like my friend Drew, I mentioned before, like a thing that was a constant pressure working at a place like Gawker or Vice is that your bosses and managers would one, treat you like garbage and then two, often pay you very poorly. Gawker actually paid people pretty well compared to industry standards, but Vice like Vice would hire people in entry-level positions in its Brooklyn office that were making like twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a year, which isn't a sustainable amount of money to live in New York City. New York right, City is incredibly yeah. expensive, and one of the ways that they would like one of the reasons why unionization at those companies was such a cool thing to witness and be part of was that whenever those criticisms would bubble up for so long, and these are exactly the same criticisms or things that would happen in game companies is managers and bosses would be like, why are you complaining? Like you work at vice, like everyone thinks you're mm-hmm. the best person in the world. You get to go like yep. hang out and smoke weed with rappers and call it work or something like that, you know? And that's like, mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of true, but it's like, it, it's really messed up when you trade in kind of cultural clout yep. as an alternative to actual monetary Being compensation. Able to pay your compensation. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's the whole thing. I mean, that was one of the things that like, um, this is a good story to tell actually that like, I remember one of the things that was a real kind of wake up call to me at Blizzard that haunted me the entire time I worked there was I met this dude at a party at a Blizzard party who, and you know that like, I should have the caveat that this is entirely his telling of the story. So it may be embellished or not entirely accurate, but he was working, you know, one of the things you think of and hear about a lot in the game industry is that people, especially at a company like Blizzard, is you kind of get your foot in the door the way I did or the way other people do working in QA, quality assurance, where you're a game tester. And your sort of goal in that is you just want to get into the company and then you want to find the right people and you want to start pitching them your ideas and showing them your creative capacity or your technical chops or something you know so for me it was this thing of like i met the narrative writers for starcraft and diablo and heroes of the storm and i started kind of pitching them on stuff and i eventually got to do a little bit of official narrative work on that but for a lot of qa people they're more interested in becoming designers proper so this guy that i met at this party told me that he worked he worked in QA on Diablo three for a very long time. And his goal, his like all his goal for the entire time was he wanted to be one of the character designers, characters, like the heroes, like, you know, mm-hmm. barbarian, witch doctor, yeah. um, whatever mm-hmm. other ones I'm blanking on them right now. And he said that he kind of ingratiated himself with the design team on Diablo three to the point that he felt like he was literally like making kind of meaningful contributions to the game and like making kind of pivotal contributions to the ways that the heroes worked. And then finally there came a time where I think it was the lead designer for the witch doctor, but I might be misremembering that someone left the company, like someone in one of those very enviable design positions left the Mm -hmm. company And he was really excited because he's like, oh, man, this is my big shot. This is like I'm finally going to get to like ascend to the position of an official designer. And he said he didn't get the job. And the only reason he didn't get the job was there was someone basically ahead of him in line that had been doing the same exact thing for slightly longer than him. And I was like, I I remember when he told me that I was like, wow, like, you know, I was in my late 20s at the time and I was like, I can't imagine committing all of my life and critical capacities to just the kind of like like blind on some levels hope that i might get a shot to be one of the people Mm. who gets into the kind of like who gets to write a character for a big franchise yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah it's like i mean it's just weird how how much that means to so many people today right that kind of thing and i'm not i'm not downplaying or whatever but i just yeah i it's it when you think about it in the big scheme of things it feels like a a, what's the word like a a bait and switch almost it does feel like that and i think one of the things that was genuinely very messed up about blizzard which i i think is unique to blizzard because of its history that i mentioned before like it Blizzard's been so successful and so singularly successful that it's kind of, it's been able to develop and kind of instill this very 
deep and profound kind of internal mythology and kind of hero worship of the people like the sort of like OG level yeah. designers who like created mm -hmm. WoW or created StarCraft or like, you know, the guys who like first created what's kind of now considered the kind of modern Blizzard style of the like big shoulder pads and big heads and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And some of that is cool. And like, it, it is genuinely cool. Sometimes it's also very upsetting to kind of meet your heroes and realize that they're not who you thought they were. Right? Yeah. Um, uh -huh. But like, there's, there's a lot of internal pressure. And I think like, it's, it's similar to the, to the one that I described in media at places like vice because, and there's been stories of this, like Jason Schreier, who was a coworker of mine at Kotaku I'm really grateful to him for writing this. He wrote a piece for Bloomberg recently about this is that Blizzard is notorious. And I don't think people realize this outside the industry proper is like they don't pay people well. They pay like well below industry standards a lot of the hmm. time. And yeah. one of the reasons they're allowed they get away with doing that is because they sell people on this idea of like, yeah, you're going to get hired here and you're living in Orange County, which is one of the most expensive places in the world. And like, you know, God, I had so many coworkers who moved in with girlfriends and boyfriends they'd been dating for like two months just because they couldn't afford rent. And that always felt messed up to me. But it's like, yeah, yeah. you're making all these compromises, but, but you're working on Overwatch and you might yeah. be able to one day be the person cool who designs the next Overwatch hero or something, you know? Um, anyways, to, so to answer your question, Chris, about it, I think like, <laughs> I was laughing before because I was thinking of this really funny moment where like, you know, I started this grad program and one of the things that resonated with me a lot about social work, and some of this is kind of marketing fluff in its own way, but like, you know, the grad programs all kind of sell themselves on this idea of like, you're going to be fighting for social and racial and economic justice. And you're going to be like changing the world for the better and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you know? So I remember during like orientation, especially um, when we were all kind of talking about like oppression and all this bad, scary stuff like that in kind of more general terms, I talked a lot about Gamergate because I think like my experience with Gamergate was one of the big things that kind of, led me to this realization of like okay like there are these kind of awful and scary forces in society and i want to be working mm -hmm. against them more actively if that makes sense and yeah. <laughs> i remember like one of my classmates um a couple weeks after that we were doing this kind of one-on-one project together and <laughs> i remember she just said to me she was like you know like you always talk about video games and you make them sound so bad and scary. And like video games are supposed to be fun. Like you should just be enjoying <laughs> video games. <laughs> and I was like, you're oh. just a salty dog, man. You've seen too much. <laughs> and I was like, Oh man, I like, I clearly have still struggled to communicate the, the true horror of something like Gamergate to people. If like she was in class with me this whole time and what she came out of it thinking is like, man, Yonix just like, really down on video games but um i don't it, it's been kind of bittersweet in a lot of ways leaving and it's been even more bittersweet recently because i've been having kind of i've had some financial troubles with my health problems and that like made mm -hmm. me like i had to sell my ps4 pro which was kind of 
a surprisingly emotional process because I had a lot of games that I was still planning to play on it. And then some really good ones like Death Stranding or something that I wanted to replay at least once more before giving it away um, or moving to the next generation of consoles or whatever. Um, And like that... It's kind of twofold. Like one way it's nice because I think now that I don't have to think about games as work anymore, I can kind of just appreciate them singularly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. solely. And that that's honestly been a relief because like to that classmate of mine, like to her point, like especially in the really dark moments of something like Gamergate, like I just felt like I was like, I was just starting to hate video games. Like I just like, yeah literally thought that they were like this evil plague that had been brought upon society and they needed to be destroyed entirely and we needed to kind of just like escape video games as a thing and obviously nothing's that simple and like i don't think anything is either like 100 percent good or 100 percent evil but you know when you can kind of like approach games on your own terms like especially like i think about this a lot with a game like death stranding or any of these kind of big expansive open world games I've played since then. Like I remember playing breath of the wild for the first time and that like, Oh boy. Yeah. That's one of those games that's so gorgeous and like so amazing that I just found it like emotionally moving. Like at certain points I would like get to a new terrain in that game. Like when you get to like the kind of like snowy hilltops in the first part Mm -hmm. and I'm like, this is so beautiful. It like would almost bring me to tears sometimes. And it's like, I'm a big that game was the definition of like awe inspiring to me. Yeah, like I remember that so vividly of just feeling that feeling Mm -hmm. multiple times. Right, and I think so much of video games is literally this process of like you see a mountain in front of you, and then the whole process of playing the game is climbing that mountain, and like Mm -hmm. that's a very literal process in Breath of the Wild. You know, you get to the top of the mountain. (laughs) There's a lot of climbing, yes. And then there's something totally new on top of the mountain and it like becomes yeah, it like yeah. opens the world in this whole new beautiful way. And like I remember playing that and I played that game over the course of like many months. And like I think that was one of the games that really made me realize like if I had to play this game to review it, like I don't think I would have hated it, but I certainly wouldn't have enjoyed it or appreciated it like anywhere yeah. near as much, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um it changes things so that's part that part's been really cool the part that i say that's bittersweet though is that it's like um like i i remember i was trying to think about this because like when i moved into my new apartment and then i sold my ps4 i was trying to think of games that i really wanted to play and um you know currently like the games on my backlog that I actually can play with my current equipment are a couple different CRPGs and like those games all sound really cool. Like I really want to play um, Disco Elysium. I've heard like amazing things about that and I haven't gotten a chance to play that yet. And um, there's one other one that I'm blanking on that I is kind of in a similar space to me, but like, so I think part of the thing that's just bittersweet about it is kind of realizing that time equation again, because like, I'm just, I'm the kind of person who like, whenever I do anything, I commit myself to it to a pretty great extent. So 
Mm-hmm. I have that same struggle. Transitioning so. <laughs> from having video games be my livelihood, and then because they were my livelihood, I I don't even know if this was the best approach, but I like used that to kind of justify to myself just buying every single video yeah. game and playing every mm-hmm. single video game as much as I could. And now it's like I just didn't play anything for the three months that I was in school. Like I remember a week or two before school started, I, um, I like found when I was moving this, uh, like old, like PlayStation store credit, uh, like, you know, code in one of my boxes of random junk. And I used that to buy, um, that game days gone. Have you guys played that? Oh yeah. No, I haven't. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Biker zombie game. Mm -hmm. And, um, Oh yes, I have played that. Sorry. I was thinking about, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. That's another one, actually, that I think going to the point again, like, I think that's exactly the kind of game that that got kind of shredded or maybe not that strongly, but like reviews really didn't like that game. And I think a lot of the reviews, like reading those reviews, I could tell that it's like this is clearly written by someone who had to play this in two days and was very frustrated by it. (laughs) Whereas, like, I think if you were allowed to take your time with that game and do all the side quests and stuff, it would have. It's not like the best. It's certainly not a Breath of the Wild level game, but it's like it has a real heart to it that I I really Mm -hmm. respected. And I think a Mm -hmm. lot of people who reviewed it kind of missed that in one way or another. But that was literally like I played that. And then I played like a couple games of Hots and Overwatch every so often during the semester on like nights when I was just kind of blowing off steam with my friends. But other than that, like I haven't played any games really until winter break started. And then I started replaying um, Fallout 1 and Planescape Torment, which are two games that I've been planning to replay for a very long time. But yeah, wow. that's the part that feels bittersweet to me where it's like, well, there's clearly all this amazing stuff out there. And it's not like yeah. me leaving didn't stop the game industry. Like the game industry is still right. chugging along, doing its thing. And like, Sometimes when I see this stuff, like seeing the cyberpunk stuff, like I just, I'm like <laughs> yeah. so put off by like the sheer aesthetic and everything of cyberpunk, let alone all of the controversies related to it that like, like I've, I've seen and I've talked to a couple of my friends who are still in games media about that. And I'm like, God, if I, if my full-time job today was like having to like you know lurk around the internet to find posts to write about cyberpunk like i would be miserable because like that just doesn't sound (laughs) fun to me at all and like that that game just is so off-putting to me but Mm -hmm. the kind of flip side of that is like well i don't want to like not play i don't want to like miss games entirely and i think that's kind of like I think that's just a problem we all now. have to figure out as adults is like how do we find time to game yes, while having like yes. our lives and our families. I can I can uh we, we need to kinda of wrap this up because we've been talking for a long time and yeah, we <laughs> gone over. No, you're good. This is re- it was really interesting hearing your story. Because yeah. um, we haven't gotten to talk on this level in a in a while. Um but uh yeah, I can sympathize with that because like video games are awesome. They're yeah. so and, and I think like you probably feel this more than me, but I feel in some ways like in the 2000s, late 2000s, you know, there's this whole new games journalism yeah. thing that Kill Screen was a big part of. And like, I feel like I, 
I, right. I like like I start that's when I started writing about video games seriously and I think I there's this feeling like like we critics and stuff are making a big contribution to to the game the world of games and games are so cool and powerful and they have so much potential and uh and then and then life hits and you realize how unsustainable right. like participating at that level is and uh I mean I miss it like I I don't I'm not able to invest like I'm lucky to play <laughs> like four or five hours. That's yeah. a really good week for me. Uh, sometimes with how much I'm juggling, and four or five I you just hours come to like a week or a month. Or yeah, something? like a week sometimes of oh, like. Okay. I mean, that's nothing in the world of video games. Yeah. Like that's a that's that's a that's new level, dude. Right? <laughs> how much yes. time I put in? Take you like half a year. <laughs> right. Half a year to finish The Witcher. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, li- that's just how it feels lately. I, I don't know if that's accurate, but, um, but all that to say, like, you just kind of have to come to terms with, with, with that balance, I guess. But I do miss it. And I do miss, like, the times when I felt like I had the margin to, like, participate mm-hmm. in this super cool new medium that's changing and growing and, like, and making a critical, you know, you know, uh, contribution to it with my articles and stuff. Um, right. But, and there are, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like I, I legitimately don't know on any level if like, I know some of my articles pissed the right people off. Cause like, I know, you know, I have a couple friends who none of them actually work at riot anymore, but I remember like, I met a couple of them through writing about league all the time. And I know that like, I know that I was definitely a kind of like figure at that company at a certain point where like people up to the level of like Mark Merrill and the founders of the company were like, Oh God, like this asshole Yannick is going to like call us out (laughs) on this shit and we need to be careful about it. But like, that's kind of, you know, that's, on one level, that's like what you kind of aspire to be able to do as a journalist is have an actual impact on anything. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, you know, like I did, I remember like writing a couple things about like Far Cry, for instance, which is a series that I've, I've always been a fan of, but definitely had tons of problems with. And I remember like same talking to a good friend of mine in the industry who worked on one of the far cry games. And he told me, which might've just been gassing me up, but he said that like he did things a certain way in approaching his own work. That was like trying to think of criticisms that I and other people had made about the previous far cry games. And, Hmm. and that is really cool to think about. And I think like, um, I think there's like another way that you think of both like, journalists in the kind of old school text-based way and then kind of vloggers and streamers and stuff where it's like they're genuinely kind of like they're the ones that are giving these games life at this point like you know something like cyberpunk like cyberpunk or a game like that or skyrim or anything wouldn't exist the way that it does without the kind of memes associated with it and stuff you know yeah Uh or like i remember like like Mario Kart 8 which was um <laughs> that was the first I was assigned Mario Kart 8 as my first kind of tr- test run when Steven at Kotaku kind of put us all on these like online games and I remember mm-hmm. that was really funny cuz then I, I remember at one point when Gamergate first started he did this interview kind of defending Kotaku and trying to defend games journalism to uh Total Biscuit the the YouTuber who uh, sadly passed away a couple years ago but um i remember he said at one point in that interview he was like 
if you want to look at like really like pioneering games journalism, you should go look at Yannick Lejacques articles about Mario Kart. And I was like, uh, <laughs> that's like, great. this is hilarious. This is like my biggest kind of claim to fame at this point is writing about Mario Kart. Like I'm an adult, you know, that's funny. <laughs> You go into journalism thinking you're going to be like Woodward and Bernstein, and then you write a couple, you know, hard hitting about, Mario, about Kart. Mario Kart instead. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, whatever it takes. But, That's great. But no, to that time point, and then I'll—I promise I'll shut up soon. But uh, it—it's weird because I think people overstate the time commitment of games sometimes. Because like I remember there's something I got in an argument with actually way back in the kill screen days with Jamin, because Jamin's one of those people who would always say stuff like, well, you know, Dark Souls takes like 300 hours to complete, and you could read like the entire collected works of Leo Tolstoy in that same time period. And I was like, well, yes, like that's, I guess that's kind of a slight on the fact that it's like you're sinking time that you could be doing something quote unquote better or more valuable in, but you know, the comparison itself is also revealing, like, being a person who's really into reading literature, especially difficult, philosophically and textually yeah. dense literature, like Russian literature, like, that's a time commitment, too. Like, all these things are, like, you kind of have to make trade-offs as a person in terms of, like, yeah, for sure. how much content do I want to consume? The one way that it, I found it even kind of, I don't want to say, like, heartbreaking because that's pretty hyperbolic but like the way that it's made me the most sad is with the online multiplayer games like MOBAs because in addition to that kind of uphill climb that I described at first the thing that makes those games so demanding and I think makes them kind of inaccessible for many adults like like anyone other than teenagers or college students who have tons of free time on their hands is that to just keep up with the sheer amount of changes and balance updates yep. and like tweaks to mm -hmm. characters and stuff, you have to be playing those games on like a weekly basis or a monthly yep. basis at the very least. And, you know, every time I would try to log back into league or heroes of the storm after taking like a couple months off, it was so painful trying to like reacclimate mm. myself because it's like suddenly everything yeah. works completely differently. And that's the part that's been really a bummer to me because like there is all the toxicity and stuff, but I think like the thing that's unique even to video games to me about team-based multiplayer games is like, you know, games are ultimately power fantasies a lot of the time or empowerment fantasies. And I think Team-based games are really powerful to me because it's not just you individually having that power fantasy of like, oh, I'm leveling up and becoming big and powerful and now I can defeat the big monster. It's literally like you're working with a group of like three to four other people. Yeah. And in working with them, you're able to kind of accomplish these really exciting and dramatic feats that you would never be able to do on your own. And that's really, really cool to me. And that's like, that's one of the things I miss the most about playing MOBAs regularly. It's like you don't have those mm. kind of mm. dramatic sort of sports-like moments if you're not really deeply invested in them. Mm. Yeah. Chris had one of those last night playing Rocket League. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Rocket League. Yeah. No, this is, this is great, Yannick. Um, thanks so much for, for, uh, for your time, man. And, um, 
Yeah, you mentioned. I want to. You mentioned uh, you have a a GoFundMe page. Did you want to mention that real quick? Oh yeah, thank you for reminding me. Um, I guess like that would be if I feel like a lot of podcasts I listen to end with people asking to plug something, and the one thing I would plug is uh, I I don't know if you can just I'll send you the link if you could put it in the like yeah absolutely the show but yeah um, sure help Yonic survive his crushing medical expenses. God, GoFundMe is such a just dark Aptly corner of, <laughs> of our current named. healthcare system. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've been kind of put in this financial sinkhole, which certainly isn't like the reason I'm coming on podcasts like this or something to try to promote my GoFundMe. But it is something I try to just kind of plug as much as possible if, yeah, if I can, because um, this stuff isn't cheap, sadly. Yep. For sure. Yeah, you've been through the ringer, man, and we definitely encourage mm-hmm. people. Um, yeah, if you're listening to this, go go help Yannick out. Um, totally would uh, wholeheartedly encourage you to do that. Um, and people can follow you on Twitter too, right? Yeah, my Twitter is just my name, like at Yannick Lejac, Y-A-N-N-I-C-K-L-E-J-A-C-Q. And uh, I haven't been writing publicly a lot lately, but like it is it's something that I definitely want to do more of both like in a personal sense, like one of my big plans this summer, once I finish the first year is I'm going to finally make my own website. And then, um, I don't know, depending on how stuff goes, I may want to try to do some sort of Substack or Patreon or something, but, um, I do write occasionally. And when I'm not like writing full articles, I'm, you know, writing all those amazing high quality tweets I'm known for. So, uh, definitely watch that (laughs) space as well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, this was great. Yannick really appreciate it, man. And, um, look forward to you, uh, live tweeting your hernia surgery (laughs) next week. I'll be be right there with you, buddy. And, uh, Chris, good luck to you as well. Uh, man, (laughs) this was, this was a ton of fun and, um, yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you guys.